Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. to episode 16 of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 16, we're in the thick of the cross-time caper discussing one of my very favorite issues of all time, Excalibur number 16, Warlord, originally published in December 1989. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on pencils, Paul Neary on inks, Glynis Oliver and Mike Rockwitz on coloring, Tom Orzachowski on lettering, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. I dreamt of the dragon. I have awoken him. Can't you see all around you the dragon's breath? Drawn him out. The Duke is off to pursue your men. There he goes. Good. Mount your horse. I will transform you into the semblance of the Duke. Igraine will think her husband has returned. But the cliff, the sea, your lust will hold you up. You will float on the dragon's breath. Ride! We have a wonderfully smart guest who also happens to be a longtime and very dear friend of mine here to help us appropriately celebrate and critique. We always critique this very exciting issue, who I will introduce in a moment. But first, let's assemble the regulars. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I do lots of writing and talking and occasional teaching about sex and gender and issues of representation in comics and pop culture for various websites and academic journals and other podcasts, including one I co-host with a co-host of this podcast called Three Panel Contrast. I'm usually Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, but I'm hopeful he'll be hiring me in an official capacity after this episode in which I plan to sing his praises even more passionately <laughs> than usual. I am joined, as always, by Mav, if you'd like to introduce yourself. 
I am a very old man. How old am I? I do not know. Possibly I'm 100, possibly more. That is the entry to John Carter of Mars. I, I get confused a lot. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. Uh, I am a, uh academic of pop culture, comics, movies, TV shows, weird stuff like that reference I just gave that nobody's going to get, but I, I assure you it's relevant. I got that reference. <laughs> I'm, I'm an adjunct professor at a couple of different universities. I'm trying to go fast today. There's a lot in this book. <laughs> and uh, I'm the host of Vox Popcast, another podcast where we talk about pop culture stuff. And this is uh, Excalibur, always one of my favorite books. I said on our very first episode that Excalibur in many ways was about teaching a 14-year-old Mav stuff about his future self and sexuality and things that he might not understand yet. Yeah, this is one of those books. <laughs> this is today is, is there's there's a lot i mean this book was about teaching like 27 year old anna about her <laughs> about her particular fondness for nightcrawlers so yes. i mean <laughs> yes. shout out to strike watercat one of our longtime <laughs> listeners who i believe tweeted or or youtube commented it at us at one point that he was just basically he is listening to the podcast waiting for this episode so <laughs> so uh, i hope he continues for the hundred and some odd episodes after this but i know that you know shout out to, to a, a longtime listener of ours who I know this one's for you. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people are going to be excited about this particular issue. But, Andrew, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Andrew. Why am I being scrutinized? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, hello. I'm Dr. Andrew Demand. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University, um, and I'm the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a big study of Chris Claremont's work with a social media focus. I would say, going along with what Mav has maybe introduced already to us, that the three thirstiest texts I've ever read in my life are Twilight, A Princess of Mars, and Excalibur. Uh, and we've got two of three to talk about today, so I'm really excited about that. Excellent. Um, let's just get into it by continuing with our introductions. We are joined, as I mentioned, by a guest who I'm very excited to have with us in Dr. Keith Friedlander. Welcome, Keith. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be here. <laughs> I was so excited when you picked this issue. <laughs> so Keith Friedlander is a communications instructor at Olds College in Alberta, Canada. He earned his PhD in British Romantic Literature from the University of Ottawa, but decided he'd rather spend his time talking and writing about comics. Good choice. He's mm -hmm. published a handful of articles on superhero comics, indie comics aesthetics, and comics production culture, most recently appearing in my collection, Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. He has a wonderful, wonderful piece about counterpublics and young Avengers in that text. We will definitely link it in the show notes. He's also the current president of the Canadian Society for the Study of Comics, which is how I met Andrew and Keith. Wonderful mm -hmm. society. Yay. Keith's favorite X-Man growing up was Cyclops because he's basic. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Is he still your favorite X-Man, Keith? I don't think so. I don't know. I think sometime in my 20s, I realized uh, the commentary upon me that Cyclops was my favorite. So. Oh, well, <laughs> oh. Cyclops hating podcast. Life, we Keith. like him as a character. Yeah. No shame here. This is a safe space. No, no, yeah. now, definitely. Now that I'm almost 40, I've, I've made peace with how basic I am. So I'm coming back to that. <laughs> well, let's tell, let's tell our listeners a little bit more about you, starting with what your Excalibur origin story is. Is this your first time reading this series? Yeah, um, this is my Excalibur origin story as your <gasps> podcast, really. Uh, I, I was an Excalibur virgin, or a Galahad, if you will. <laughs> 
a little oh, oh, god nerd jokes <laughs> a little Arthurian humor in there you can you can use that um but yeah I, I had never read any Excalibur and uh, I began reading it with your podcast I think the only impression I had of Excalibur was like the cover image from that first issue which made me curious to read it because I didn't know much about Phoenix's character and she was so prominent on that cover but like I literally had not read any issues until this podcast and I've been reading along every week oh thank you so much yeah i'm so happy but you have a history with x-men comics though right yeah so i i came to x-men like a lot of kids of teens in the 90s did through multimedia i think my first entry into the x-men was the arcade beat-em-up game from 1992 (laughs) which was like a beautiful giant double screen arcade cabinet and that led me to the you know cartoon series and that eventually led me into reading just a real smattering. I think the first contemporary story arc I read was Fatal Attractions in the 90s. And then I kind of jumped around. I read Claremont's Fantastic Four versus the X-Men. Uh, so I have a very patchy history, but I've read like storylines from almost every decade in their history, just never in sequence. No, fair enough. I mean, God, I can't even tell you how much anger I have at so many X-Men adaptations and the portrayal of Nightcrawler in the sense that I did encounter that X-Men multimedia growing up. And if he'd been Excalibur Nightcrawler, I would have been an X-Men fan 20 years earlier than I am. Because <laughs> I know I would have had that hook with that character right away, but he has never been that character. Other than in the Wolverine and the X-Men cartoon, which is one of his good adaptations. But speaking of good Nightcrawler, let's get into this issue. And we'll start with our usual issue summary. We, I think we are all really excited to talk about this issue. So we're like, so let's get rid of the preliminaries and just like get to the goods. So we'll, we'll go through this as quickly as possible. The story begins with a clash of arms, counterpoint pointed by the screams of the maimed and dying as a sleek pirate corsair matches steel with an imperial cruiser. So says a mysterious robed storyteller in a Star Wars-esque cantina lousy with space aliens on the opening pages of this issue. The storyteller proceeds to narrate a battle between a blue-skinned pirate crew and their very white adversaries, into which drops one Kurt Wagner. And I do mean drops, he falls out of the sky onto the female leader of the blue-skinned pirates, knocking her unconscious. The rest of the crew attacks him and he defends himself, admirably taking out the entire crew with the help of his acrobatic gifts and cutlasses wielded in both hands and his tail. The blue pirate leader named Kimri wakes up and starts to explain the situation. But before she can do that, Chris knocked unconscious by an unseen assailant who turns out to be the blonde lady who was being attacked by the pirates, who the narrator identifies as Princess Anjali. Very mysterious. The storyteller informs us that the members of Excalibur became separated during their latest cross-time jaunt. While Kurt landed on the pirate ship, others landed elsewhere. We catch up with Kitty and Rachel hanging upside down in a meat locker without their powers. Something about the planet seems to be dampening them. Still, they manage to escape being cooked into a stew and are taken under the wing of the first selectman. That reality is Lockheed, who is the leader of an anthropomorphic race of purple dragon warrior people. Kitty, Rachel, and the first selectman go searching for the rest of the team and succeed in finding Alistair Stewart before they're all taken hostage by an enormous green tentacle monster. Yet more tentacle monsters. <laughs> Elsewhere, Kurt wakes up naked in a pool with Anjali intending to join him. She does. They kiss and do other things. Not on panel, but presumably since the next time we see them, they're curled up together on a curved bed, drinking wine and eating grapes and wearing flimsy robes that do not include underwear. We're not sure how long they stay there, but long enough for Kurt to fall asleep and wake up again and become suspicious about his seemingly perfect 
hostess. He follows her into the dungeon where he finds Kimri, whom Anjali told him was slain in battle. Kimri explains the real story. Anjali is a succubus who seduced Kimri's father, the one-time ruler of the world, and somehow stole all the world's magic to preserve herself. Kurt realizes he's been on the wrong side of things, frees Kimri, and teams up with her to take on Anjali. They find Anjali commanding the giant green tentacle monster, which is in the process of devouring Kitty, Rachel, and Alistair. Kurt cuts Kitty free, and Kimri takes out Anjali's servant, who she realizes is her brainwashed and deformed father. While she's stunned by the shock of that, Anjali tries to kill her, but is stopped by Kitty, who impales Anjali and sends her falling off the platform to her presumed death. That's Anjali taken care of, but they still have the tentacle monster to contend with. Kurt realizes it seems fearful of Rachel, so he tosses her into its maw, and because he's Nightcrawler, and plans that involve tossing things together always work, <laughs> this plan does work. Rachel's suppressed phoenix force activates, destroying the creature, but also maybe the entire world and Excalibur. The issue ends on that cliffhanger, which the storyteller promises will be resolved in the next issue. Okay. First impressions. Does everybody love this issue as much as I do? Please tell me I'm not going to be the only one singing his praises. You did all say that you were excited. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's, there's some good stuff. <laughs> it's our show. We're going to find some problems. This is a good issue. This is a very definitively good comic. Well, let's go over to you, Keith, because you're the Excalibur Galahad, as you mentioned. Jumping in here as an issue of Excalibur, did you love this issue of Excalibur? What are your first impressions? I, I was thankful that I had been reading the series along with the podcast. So I have I read this series leading up to this, uh, following along with your podcast episodes, because I think I would have been confused. I find this to be a very interesting issue. I don't think it's my favorite that I've read so far. I think it's very interesting in pacing and framing. I also feel like this was something that Claremont was maybe just like waiting to write. Like this is like <laughs> such a deep, like, you know, John Carter deep dive fantasy that it's, it's fascinating how just all in this issue is compared to some other issues. Well, yeah. Can we ask Andrew to kind of situate this in some of Claremont's proclivities for us? Because he's done these pulp and pirate stories before, and this seems to be an interest of his, right? Yeah. He's actually written John Carter of Mars for Marvel before. Um, Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, no, he's right into this. It's also a series as in John Carter that corresponds with a lot of Claremont's interests, such as, you know, space opera and sex stuff, uh, which are things that Burroughs very much created, at least that formula, I should say. Well, do we want to get just like right into the context of the issue and the content of the issue? Because, you know, I feel like the first impressions are is that we either liked it or it's interesting. So let's get into what makes it either exciting or interesting. I want to start with talking about this as a Nightcrawler showcase because I do think that in a lot of ways like I've talked about the 1985 Dave Crocker miniseries on the pod before and one of the things that I think is so good about that series as like a Nightcrawler series is that it creates a world that allows what's great about the character of Nightcrawler to truly shine and I think that that's also something we get here this isn't a Kurt Solo story we have the other characters present in this story as well but it almost might as well be a Kurt Solo story. Mm-hmm. He's definitely at the center of this story. And it definitely has a lot, a lot, a lot of kind of, you know, parallels or sort of references to that earlier Dave Cochran miniseries. We have, you know, flying space pirate ships and stuff. And we have him dropped onto one, which is literally the same thing that happens to him in the 85 Nightcrawler series. In some ways, this is a redux of that. So yeah, I mean, did that make sense to you kind of as a read of this? Like if this is a world in which Kurt is allowed to kind of be the best version of himself. And like, I mean that for good or bad. I don't mean 
like he's like a saintly character in this, but it is a very like nightcrawler world. What does that mean? Like, why is this a world in which he's able to kind of succeed? Or why does this world make sense with this character? Well, there's a line um, at one point. I think it's when he wakes up um, in Anjali's bed uh, where the narrator says that he's coped in an inimitable style, uniquely his own. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is Claremont saying this is Nightcrawler's ideal existence. Mm-hmm. But why is it his unique, like, ideal existence? Like, what are these swashbuckler fantasies that Kurt has, and why does he have them? It's a swashbuckler world, which he loves. I mean, it's how he imagines himself. Kurt's power is teleportation and sticking to things, but, like, we envision him with a sword always, because that's that's what he is. He, you know, he yeah. is a wannabe, you know, Errol Flynn pirate. Like, his, the image inducer, his first image was, I'm going to look like Errol Flynn. That's who he is. And this is a world where you don't need an image inducer, because much like in his in that first limited series this is the world where nobody cares if you're funny looking because everybody's funny yeah. looking and it's fine yeah. and you know you can be funny looking and you can still get the hot megan looking you know blonde babe or not you know there's other blue people and there's dragon people <laughs> and it doesn't matter this is the most accepting post-racial post-wonderful world in this is perfect nightcrawler space if everybody is weird and we don't care about appearance except for when you're hot you know and you know certainly humanoid Lockheed is also hot and Kimri is also hot <laughs> and like everyone's hot everyone is sexy and you know you get to use swords I mean, he's not wrong I would love to live in this world I like swords <laughs> I like sexy people <laughs> sure yeah. I, I you know one thing I've really been enjoying about your podcast is you've really brought out how you know throughout this whole series there's been this like constant ongoing you know acts of masquerade and donning different identities and donning different skins and some fit better than others and this is especially with the last few issues with them jumping between realities and this is like a very special present to Kurt in that oh you've always put on this mask and this masquerade of being the swashbuckler it's always been this disguise or this persona that you've put on and now here's a world where it's not the persona like you get to just be it and it's appropriate and you're not acting the part of the swashbuckler you're the swashbuckler and the fact that there are people and a, a heroine counterpart that look exactly like Kurt really kind of emphasize that. It's like he's not the fish underwater pretending to be someone. Like here, he, he's fallen into that reality that's like fits him like a glove. Yeah, I mean, I think the authenticity of his embodiment of the role here does matter in terms of there's a thing that can happen with Kurt where he gets written off as a comic relief character, right? And I mean, some of his swashbuckling plays into that because look how goofy it is this like goofy little blue devil guy that thinks he's Errol Flynn ha 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 it's so funny right and seeing him actually succeed in that role I think is important in counteracting that a little bit you know Kurt is a guy who I mean what happens when he gets on the pirate ship is that he almost does that thing that you know his just fighting skill is like instinctually activated he's just like oh did I accidentally defeat everybody like just by stumbling into this situation <laughs> it's, like, it's funny but I mean he's super hyper competent as well there's an image that I really love on that page, which is the close-up of his face when he gets into the sword fight. And it's like this look of savage glee on his yes. face as he's like, oh, this is happening. And uh, it's just, yeah, it, it's a very nuanced e expression if you're trying to de describe the emotion on his face there. But it's a great shot. Yeah, I mean, his absolutely kind of savage glee. But I mean, that whole page, 
I just love everything on that whole page. Like his posture after he falls, like in the first panel on that page where like Angelie is like, please, sir, I beg you. And he's like, oh God, I'm sorry. Like, what did I do? And he's kind of like trying to orient himself. He's got one hand like on the upraised butt of Kimri, propping himself up and trying to get up. And then he's got like this sort of shock, like, oh dear, expression in the next panel as everybody's racing on him. And then that four panel fight sequence is just beautiful. Like we've talked on the podcast before about Alan Davis really developing a unique visual language for Kurt because sometimes why Nightcrawler fans like Alan Davis Kurt can kind of get reduced to like well he draws him super hot and that's true but it's also this visual language that he creates for the character like the way that he designs his fighting moves here that makes sense with his body and his skills and his training and it's a really unique look for the character and not everybody does that and to be able to combine that power and grace with that kind of determined skill and combining as Keith mentioned you know that facial expression that tells us so much about his character you know one of my things of Kurt that I've never seen sort of dealt with and it has dropped continuity at this point but when he falls from heaven so after he is killed and he's in heaven and he's like unsatisfied with that existence it's when pirates show up and hand him a sword that he's finally happy again and I don't think Kurt has ever properly sort of reckoned with his implication in the joys of violence because he thinks about himself as a very like non-violent character but seeing him enjoy this I think is really important and it's not something that we get sort of dealt with in a critical way here but still the presence of that shows an understanding of this character that I really appreciate and I just have to say that final panel on the bottom too like now that's what I call a workout with him with the sword in his (laughs) mouth and everybody is positioned in very interesting poses and I posted that to social recently and someone commented what kind of a workout was he doing on these people and I was like yeah I'm pretty sure that's intentional given the context of this world but Excalibur has a lot of butt up shots but um, (laughs) especially under Davis but just I want to piggyback on your visual language of Kurt thing because it is a very fluid and graceful fighting style that Davis takes care to make visually distinct from being Spider-Man, which is the yes, most common yes. visually fluid, graceful style. Kurt has one that's all his own to where it's just like you see him doing this weird, you know, I'm holding the sword, going to do a kip up kick across the uh, I'm going to talk in wrestling terms because that's how I talk, but I'm going to be I'm doing a kip up swing kick across the panel because that's how Kurt would move and just the grace of this, but also so I think the reason this works, I mean, to your original question of why is this Kurt's world, Kurt is, yes, he is complicit with violence, but it's fun violence. There is childlike glee of this. This is this, this is why do you love Star Wars when you're seven years old? Because Star Wars is a world where it doesn't matter what the problem. I always say you can punch a problem. Not in Star Wars. You can solve a problem with a sword, a laser sword. And that's Kurt's ideal world, right? Like all problems can be solved by, you know, dueling. And you get to say say stuff like you cur. Like that's yeah. <laughs> like yeah. like the dialogue here is just so much. Please, sir, I beg you, save me. Oh, okay, damsel in distress. I don't know what's going on, but there's a damsel in distress, so I'm gonna roll with this and it gets them into trouble later in the issue. But he falls into this world, literally, falls from the sky into this world, and his gut reaction is, All right, damsel over there attacking bandits over there and their swords, so I don't care about anything else. I'm just going to play this video game till the end maybe just adding on that i I think one of the ways that the the narrative itself helps to sell kurt's joy here is through exceptionalism this is a world that only works for kurt really and we get that on the cover we've got the classic frazetta homage um, and kurt is in the pose perfectly and then we have kitty and rachel um not portraying that world accurately um 
that they're, you know, sort of sending it up a little bit. And I think that works really, really well for the narrative because Kurt does get seduced by this world, right? He, he does fall into it too far uh, and eventually has to pull himself out of that in order to rescue the other members of Excalibur who are not at all having the good time that Kurt is having. Yeah, and I want to talk about the way that it kind of subverts the standard narrative that it's setting up. But I also want to just make sure that we don't move past, like, what is the swashbuckler fantasy and what does it mean for Kurt? Because he's not imagining himself as like Rambo. He's imagining himself as like Zorro or Errol Flynn, this kind of attractive, sort of masculine, but also femme connotative, you know, type of character. And I'm interested in terms of that as an icon that he's focused on embracing. And I was wondering if you guys had thoughts about that. Like, why specifically this identity for Kurt? What do we associate with swashbuckler figures that Kurt would find especially appealing? I, I do think the, we, we, I mean, I talked a little bit about the sword play, but also there is, um, I, I don't know how to answer the question other than to say it's almost a cosplay aspect, right? Like, you know, for us, we being people who live in 2021 as superhero fans, you know, the heroes of our youth are our superheroes, right? Like, you know, why do we dress up as a Superman or a Nightcrawler or a, you know, Captain America or whatever? You dress up for that power fantasy. Kurt lives in a world where the superheroes of his youth are dashing pirates, right? It, it is the perfect world for him just because of the joyousness. I, I remember watching, for me, Channel 43, WUAB, like watching mid after afternoon movie which was frequently a narrow flynn movie an old arrow flynn movie and he grew up watching these and i think this is just his his perfect world why do people cosplay uh, jane austen lolita fashion in 2021 this is just what he wants to be i think it's a freedom for him see i would say that there's a performative aspect to swashbuckler figures in general and sort of like a quick wits you know cleverness aspect and a spectacular aspect to them that I think would appeal to the idea of performing as that character. You know, again, they're not like the action character who's like the Rambo action hero type. Like it's different from like a Tarzan character or something, right? And it's different from a superhero too, because swashbucklers are a little bit more flamboyant. I mean, that's why I sort of use the word femme to describe them. Yeah. It's a they're very charming. like, yeah, like, I mean, they're more of a female gazy type of character, which I find it interesting that that's specifically the type of character that he's glomming onto in terms of him having... I I do think Kurt has a complicated masculinity. It's not just that he has a macho fantasy that's an element of it, but I think the performative aspects of it and him wanting to be somebody sort of not just strong and macho, but like charming and beautiful, you know, know is like part of it too. I don't know if this speaks to performance, but it does speak to duality. There's the the scene where um, he comes across Kimri for the second time uh, and she says, I'll barter my life with my honor, which is horrific. Uh, And Kurt Kurt being a gentleman says, I know, oh, sorry, yeah. Kurt says, being a gentleman, I've no designs on either. And her response is, ha, because she perceives him, right? She perceives that there's this this layer of gentility and code and all that kind of stuff. But there's also that raw sexual attraction that Kurt is feeling. And I really like that as kind of um, revealing of, of, of Kurt's character. And as I said, the sort of layers informing it. Yeah, he's, he's definitely modeling like a specific kind of masculinity, but it's a masculinity that, as you said, Anna, it's not, it, it's not restrained by the more overt dominant models of masculinity that you know especially in the 80s and 90s ran Mm -hmm. rampant and and especially uh in superhero genre work so you know he is modeling he's he's not just modeling he's manifesting a form of masculinity here that is being reinforced and reflected back to him in a positive way more in this setting than it 
it is in the regular world. I also yeah. I also feel like the swashbuckler, there's something about the permission to be bold and brazen, which I feel like Kurt would like to be more often, but and maybe this is just like, you know, the the media in which I originally encountered Kurt, but there was always that emphasis of him having to hide himself as being one of like the, you know, defining traits of his character and the, you know, the the image disguise and and the fact that it's not just that he can be himself and doesn't have to disguise himself, but that, you know, the, the swashbuckler is brave and, and brazen and does whatever they want all the time. Uh, and that's something that he wants to manifest for himself. Yeah, to me, it's like the swashbuckler is a masculine fantasy and a macho fantasy on some level, but it's also a fantasy that has like just a little tinge of gender bending to it. And so I can see that being appealing to Kurt in terms of a performance that's manageable for him, given his inherent difference. You know, he's never going to fit that role perfectly, but that's sort of part of it, right? I mean, is that part of what, because I want to talk about his imperfection in a space like this as well, because I think part of what makes Kurt really identifiable when he is performing these roles is the fact that he becomes like a reader surrogate figure just through the fact that he can never perform them perfectly because he's a blue devil guy, you know? And we do see his goofiness here too. I mean, right before he has this moment of extreme competence, we see him crashing into Kimri and he's upside down with like his, like, <laughs> you know, his nightcrawler weird feet, you know, kind of splayed at a weird angle and everything. And we see him being very clumsy, like a moment before he has his moment of success, right? And I feel like that's really important to kind of the nightcrawler identity as well, kind of this way that that he's always imperfect in these spaces, even though he can have these moments of hyper competence. But just being in this world where you know there's a there's a apparently a significant blue population of their of this world, and there's an, a significant dragon population. Just the the fact that difference doesn't matter here. So now it's not. I mean, it doesn't matter in that world, but right. it still matters to us as readers. Right, right, right. But I'm wondering if the if the message here is uh, to Kurt, this isn't a performance anymore. You know, yeah, I get to. To him, I mean, identity is always performance. But to him, oh my God, I can be my true self, and I'm going and I'm going to roll with it as long as I can. Like I think that there's something to that here. No, like, I think so too. But I think that to the extent that he has character growth or a character realization, oh, yeah. it is as we said before, you know, falling too hard into the performance. And because he's a character who understands performance and is used to always having to perform, that's where some of his emotional intelligence comes from, and that's how he doesn't get swept up like in Angelie's succubus mm. plan. And the way he could, he There's is able to have that. Later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But he is able to have that kind of self-consciousness sort of eventually and step back from that. And I think that that's really key too, because it's complicating where this story could go. It's not letting Kurt completely fall into this narrative. Yeah, I agree with that. I also just want to add real quickly that I also love, we get the little panel towards the very end before the big showdown of him getting into costume. <laughs> like, and, oh, and at the yeah. very end, they knock out the guard and it's like, eh, and he gets to acquire appropriate attire for himself and he is so excited like he is so excited and he has gone back to this costume many times in future comics like Mm. we'll put all the references to it because i have them we'll put all the references to them (laughs) up on our webpage because he has put on this costume many many times to enact danger room scenarios so he has gone holographic cosplaying in this like many times over the years Mm -hmm. since this moment so this was clearly a big moment for him i love that shot because it's like she's looking up at him like you know you don't have to put on the costume And he's just like, no, hold on, we got to do this. I got to get into this outfit. It's so good. I love it so much. How else will I sword fight if I, I mean, it makes sense to me. (laughs) And like, he's got his feet in the, like the little booties, but you can still see like the outline of like his nightcrawler feet. I love that little detail so much. 
Again, sort of the care that Alan Davis spends with this character. Okay, well, let's talk about the sexual content of this, because I think that's where we're going to get into some of that critique and complication. So there's this scene where Kurt wakes up in the hot tub and he is seduced or, you know, not. We're going to talk about it by Angelie. And so I just I got to say my little piece first. You know, this is going to be an episode of a lot of me like defending Kurt and talking about him. But this issue and why this issue is so important, like this is pretty much and I really don't think this is a difficult argument to make because I think this is true this is like the most explicit Kurt sex scene that we have had in a comic like ever there's a scene where he's naked post coitus with Megan in like another reality in um, Age of X-Men the amazing Nightcrawler but this is him in bed with no pants on in the hot tub this is like a lot of explicit sexual content and we've talked before about some of my defining Kurt attraction moments have been him in the bath we spent 20 minutes on that in our first issue there's the scene with him and amanda in uncanny x-men number 169 where he's in the hot tub with amanda that was very much like a turning point scene for me but some of what we talked about way back in episode one was how these scenes are kind of important for a character like this because they humanize him Mm -hmm. right because Mm -hmm. he can be this comedy relief character but we talked in the bathtub scene like making it very clear that he has a penis and we're hiding it from you Uh actually kind of matters for monster characters who are often dehumanized right so I just had to say that like little spiel to begin like this issue is very very fan servicey but it's fan servicey of the types of fan gazes that often don't get prioritized in this genre like female gazes and gay male gazes like people who like to look at lean muscled devil boys lounging around in bed and licking wine <laughs> off people's hands it's not a gaze that we always get catered to in this genre and I just think that's important to note before we get into some of the complications of this scene I agree uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm not <laughs> Yes, there are complications. We're going to talk about it. I see notes. You know, I know like, like I know, but this is it, I, we've talked a lot about on the show in previous episodes about how did they get this past 1989 censors? Oh my god, how did they get this past 1989 censors? Even before this, Angelie's and actually and Camry and her people, but the the standard outfits that these people wear, if you uh, if you're a modern comic book reader in 2021, maybe you're familiar with the John Carter um series of comics that are that are still being published in 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 particular Deja Thoris, they're wearing sheets like and and I remember watching this like oh the I, I mean I've seen women in lingerie before as fourteen year old Mav but it did not occur to me that one could just wear a sheet and you and you talked about like their explicit robes with no with clearly no underwear but those are more modest than her I'm just wandering around on ship deck um out, outfit because at least there's a little tie there I yeah. love the sexuality of this I love the frankness of it I love that this is a world it's a world with out i don't know if i want to say consequence there's definitely consequence there's a world without sexual inhibition in a good way it's a very sex positive world yes angelie is a villain we'll get to that but like the fact that this is i have met this woman she is beautiful she finds me beautiful and now we're going to bang hard in this hot tub (laughs) because that because that's the world you know we just met an hour ago and i was unconscious for 55 of those minutes so (laughs) but who cares because because it's going down now. And I think that despite the complicated nature of consent, which I, I'm also going to be, believe it or not, I'm going to be on Team Anna a little bit here, even when we get to that part to that part of the conversation. There is a human nature of this where, again, 14-year-old boy reading this, oh my God, 
I wish some hot blonde lady would like try to have sex with me in a hot tub. And he got that and that makes him human and identifiable. Why does he roll with this? Because this is a dream come true, just like living on Swashbuckler Planet. Like, of course he loves this. But it's also his weakness, though. It is his weakness, and we'll get to it. Yeah, but but because yeah. he makes the wrong decision. But doesn't that make it like not sex positive in a weird way? I, I, I don't think the... I No, because I don't think the problem is that he had sex with her. I think the problem is that <laughs> he didn't... No, I, I, because I think the problem is that he didn't see her as the bad guy, and even without the sex scene, it would still be there. The problem happens the second he that he falls onto the ship from the sky and he assumes that blue people are the bad guys and the pretty blonde lady, white lady is the good guy. That's the assumption he makes even as a blue person himself. But, so but that's, that's a symbolic problem. seduction too though, right? Sure. Yeah, I don't know. For but, me, it all kind of lumps together. Okay, for me, it's not the sex though that, that changes it. It's the... it's the Yeah, no, I, I take your point. I, again, just yeah. the, the scene out of context mm-hmm. totally works for me in that sense. Mm-hmm. I just think I would actually prefer it you know what I mean? In a weird way, if Anjali didn't turn out to be seducing him to manipulate him and kill his friends. I think my sort of redemptive argument for it is not going to be on the narrative level, but purely on the visual level, like of this being just, again, catering to those gazes that don't always get catered to. And I don't think the context takes that away. Like, I mean, for me reading this comic, just being like, this is Nightcrawler being super sexy and he is portrayed as legitimately sexy and not comedically sexy in a way that we just haven't seen before. So I don't think for me it takes that away, but there's definitely like this isn't a positive sexual encounter on a narrative level i will say for me well i mean the thing that i would bring up too is just that like there is an element of kurt often gets paired with like the beautiful blonde like even just with like jemaine like amanda his sister slash girlfriend and there is a suspicion (laughs) i have around that because it's almost a joke you know he's like the monster guy who like gets the barbie always it's a beauty of the beast thing yeah. And I, we're going to talk more though about this next issue, but um, as far as whether it's okay or not, I think there are things with Kimri next issue that make this more okay. For me, it's, I don't want to preview too much, you know, next week's episode, but for me, the relationship that he has with Anjali, who he does not know is evil when he's doing it. Yes, she is being, she's being the manipulative bitch, but he doesn't know that, right? <laughs> like for him, from his context, for me, this but we is do. A, yes, we do. But yeah, because like, the dramatic irony I, absolutely and, and it is it's complicated and you know, this yeah. is going to lead into the consent issue a lot right because we right. do know when that happens but from his perspective and in isolation this is a world where anybody can be sexy and you don't have to look a certain way and that, yeah that, and i i like that to me yeah that for sure works. Yeah, I like on a character level him not having to worry about his strange appearance, but I do still wish sometimes that wasn't always expressed in giving him an ideal, perfect, white, blonde character to yeah. sleep with, because there are other ways that I would like to see his sex positivity expressed and not always going to that well. So that's my little criticism of it. Give it 30 issues, we'll have a little more of this, but um, yeah. but, not to, <laughs> but not to this extent. I, I mean, obviously, this is, you're right, this is the sexiest, not just Kurt, this is one of the most explicit marvel sex scenes in their non you know their non-adult line that they've published to this date you know and like i think it has enough of an imprint that there is Mm -hmm. a fan logic to like kurt is a sexy character and you can read a lot of nightcrawler stories and not necessarily get that Mm -hmm. but people are thinking of this story yeah like this story has a big imprint in sort of the fan consciousness you know even people who read it once 30 years ago they're still like oh yeah nightcrawler is a sexy character because of that one excalibur issue which is one of the sexiest x-men issues <laughs> he had sex with the clone the entire time 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want? It's a dream. We haven't heard from you for a while, Keith. So do you want to take a first stab at kind of breaking down some of the consent stuff here and how we might approach it? Like I know Mav has talked about before that we sometimes don't read consent issues into this type of scene. When it's a female character seducing a male character, we're just like, oh, of course, any dude character would want to hit that. So therefore, the consent issues don't matter. But did you have any have any thoughts about sort of the politics of this scene? Like, did the consent issues trouble you? Because you said that you thought it was an interesting issue and not necessarily necessarily celebrating it as much as like I have been perhaps so I wanted to give you sort of a first stab at that I mean there there are two thoughts that kind of come to my head and one I, I do kind of agree with Mav that the the seduction is almost that of the world which almost takes place the second he lands on the mm. pirate ship and that you know at this point he's already kind of on the roller coaster ride um, so I, I do think that that doesn't necessarily absolve the questions of consent here but I feel like he's kind of already in a thrall from the beginning that kind of lasts right up until he sees her walking away and starts to tail her and that's the moment he kind of breaks out of it so it does I think it, it takes away because that moment in the hot tub for me is not the moment at which he loses his, his free will or has his will kind of taken away from him I feel like he's kind of already into it at that point I think the thing that kind of struck me about this in terms of sexuality and consent from the perspective of a male character is just kind of playing into this recurring theme that I see a lot in superhero comics of this era of just like the depiction of the sexual dom- sexually dominant woman um, mm. that that is this kind of we got earlier in Excalibur with like the goblin princess but we have like the white queen and Sue Storm is malice this just like yeah. there is this kind of mythic figure of the sexual dominant woman and it seems more playing into a kind of male fantasy surrounding that that I feel like a lot of comic writers and artists harbored at this time that came out in their work so that's kind of where my mind went when I was reading this is that she's another one of those those characters yeah and that complicates my argument that this is a female gazy comic right because it's giving us Anjali as well and in a way I'm not as keyed into that because I'm just so focused on Kurt in the scene but there's definitely a way of reading it where it's still prioritizing that gaze right through this figure of the beautiful blonde dominatrix is it fair to say that it's I mean the, the disruption is that it's doing both though right like yeah, it, it yeah. is not in your typical whether we're talking Talking about a Rambo movie post the first one or any Hollywood action film of this time through any comic, you know, superhero comics, you have, you know, why does Kurt sleep with Angeli? Because when you're the hero and you save the damsel, you get to have sex. That's why he does. It, like, I mean, that's it's the script. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and and I think that usually when Batman swings down and saves the damsel, it doesn't really give you a female gazy sexualized it's a male power fantasy and yeah i think anna is noticing the you know like this book is written for you like clearly <laughs> like as nightcrawler's <laughs> pr manager this book is literally one day there will be an anna papard and she will look yeah. at this comic and she will love it. like <laughs> yeah. I, I assume that that's the script going through claremont's head right now so he's writing it towards her but that doesn't mean he has to ignore 14 year old map he's you know this is the book where everybody gets what they want you know there's <laughs> and also I, uh same sex gaze between kitty and rachel in absolutely so much yeah, coming we'll, we'll be, and rachel is very into this moment in 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 ways that happen later you also have um more questions about lockheed i mean there's a little something for everybody in this issue i think 
But I think the disruptiveness of the equal opportunity exploitation likeness of the Kurt and Angelou scenes is the fact that if she's in that male gaze objectification rhetoric and he's here present with her, that almost is part of the disruption because we're having him in an objectification rhetoric like with her and paired with her and like focused on in a number of these scenes. And just as you're looking at the scene, so the scene where the wine falls on her hand or the page where the wine falls on her hand and he licks it off, I like the attention paid throughout that sequence to there's no attempt to like disguise Kurt's unusual features or anything we have you know his hand like holding her hand and it is Kurt's like three-fingered hand and that's focused on in the frame and you know we have his foot like sort of shooting up into the air when she knocks him down onto the bed and I like that it's him in sexy mode but it's still so much him and that's really important to me in this scene as well like in terms of that sort of mm, humanizing his difference but it's not neglecting his difference in that process of humanizing because that's something we've talked about briefly before that Alan Davis's art style does make Kurt a little bit more masculine than some previous artists had done and yet he does yeah. still focus on those like elements of his physical difference and I think that that's really important to kind of the balance that the scene is striking between sort of Kurt's attractiveness and monstrousness and how those things feed into each other like I'm always saying like there's this read of Kurt that people do where it's like oh he's able to be witty and charming and attractive despite his monstrous appearance and I'm just like what that's like a feature not a <laughs> like you're not getting it <laughs> like I'm telling you <laughs> but so like I like to see that played up as a legitimate aspect of his sexiness that's so like another aspect of it for me yeah and I think to your point Anna like especially given the context of this issue within the larger series there's something very validating about you know just the affirmation of Kurt's sexuality here because there have been so much hinting around at it leading up to it with like the bathroom scenes earlier and, and the romance scenes there's a lot of you know Kurt baiting it's like <laughs> he's a sexual being but no he's not the character who gets to be sexual because it's always going to be something complicating it or the camera's always going to pan away or it's always going to be his friend's girlfriend or something like yeah, that yeah. and it's like well no here it, it's the you know I haven't read all of the Nightcrawler comics in the past so i don't know if he's had moments like this in the past in the x-men but in this series it's like no this is validating he is a, a fully sexual being and and we're not just gonna hint around at it coyly it wasn't i mean okay he's clearly had sex with amanda in a bathtub it wasn't like this <laughs> <laughs> like like there are, there have been other moments it, this is very this yeah is that was goofy and cute and it was sexy but not explicit like the way that this is goofy and it's not and like cute. when we say explicit it's not like this is like they're banging on panel but it's still like the sexual context is more teased out than it was in that scene i also feel like that one just to look back at it and unlike anna i don't have the the issue number and page number just committed to my memory but, um, but well it's uncanny um, one it's uncanny 168 and 169 well 168 is the burt reynolds homage and then yeah, 169 yeah. they're in the hot tub i believe <laughs> um but even in that one that's two people who have been dating for a while and they're taking yeah, a bath yeah. together so perhaps there was you know there was clearly sex involved or maybe not maybe this is just the day we get clean but they're they're two sexually involved people this is a hot and heavy one night stand in a hot tub with some queenly so i i, I think there's explicit sexiness here as a, as opposed to romanticism which is what 
what we got out of him before. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, that's sort of what I was suggesting with like cute, but that's a much better way of putting it. I mean, the other thing that I'll just say, like in terms of sort of fan gazes and affiliations, I mean, I have this thing with Kurt where like I'm both in love with Kurt and like want to be Kurt. I mean, that's part of like my love for this character. So having like this scene, it's like having my gaze and my sexuality validated, right? Like getting to kind of experience this with this character. So that's part of why it's so important to me, right? Because if you're attracted to a character and like you're always looking for scraps when you're like a female reader in the superhero genre like and that's like whether you're a straight reader or a non-straight reader because it's just it's aimed at heterosexual men it is what it is and so you're always hunting for scraps and then when you have this issue where the character that you think is super sexy is presented as super sexy that's like validating your entire outlook because you've been reading this book for all this time looking for those scraps of sexiness and then getting it here is just like I mean that's what like this issue blew my mind when I read it the first time like you're absolutely right Mav I was just like they did an issue for me like that's I don't even expect that to happen and yet here it is and then I always come back to issues like this as a way of complicating how we think about the superhero genre right because there are these moments where it does or at least can cater to more diverse gazes and it doesn't always do that but it gives me such high hopes for its ability to do that um do we perceive getting back to the consent stuff like do we perceive what happens here as like does Kurt perceive it as a lack of consent do we get any signs in the story that he perceives it that way is he upset by this encounter in the aftermath of it no but he should be um yeah i think for me okay so, so we had a talk off microphone just about the sexual pathology of kurt as a character and how consistent it is for me i do think kurt likes to be dominated like even in that scene with amanda that, that we were referencing just now it's specifically him offering himself up for her consumption because that's what he wants that's seduction to him so angelie throwing herself at him in a situation where he is powerless and i think that's important to the consent issue because his teleportation won't work so he's trying to leave yeah, and can't yeah. i think he definitely enjoys that on some level i think it's consistent with his pathology um and i think the power dynamics of you know this this guy who wiped out an entire boat full of warriors um in order to save her does make it a little less icky for me okay okay other thoughts i think he's consenting <laughs> and here's <laughs> and here's why i think it i think it is problematic i think it is problematic in the way that superhero comics even to this day, though there are notable exceptions, but the the hero narrative, and I mean this literally in the Joseph Campbell monomythic sense, the hero narrative creates a world where, I'm going to use male pronouns here because that's the way Campbell wrote it, but the world where where a hero gets to encounter a goddess and a seductress. That's who we, right. those are the women that uh, that the hero encounter, encounters along his journey. And basically he gets to sleep with both. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what happens. And usually it's, you know, the seductress is using sexuality as manipulation. The, um, the goddess is the sweet, innocent one that you're saving, that you're rescuing from the damsel. Here we have Kurt encountering one, thinking he's got the other. I don't think mm. he's not consenting because we know Anjali is evil, but he he doesn't and i think this gets weird because when we look back when we read these things we read consent narratives that aren't explicit rape i don't i'm, I'm not talking about something like probably the most famous in comics is the killing joke in the killing joke yes. joker clearly violates barbara right like he shoots her and undresses her against her will while she protests okay so i'm not talking about that i'm talking 
about in the hero narrative, there are a lot of places where the villain will pretend to be sweet, and particularly with women, oh, she's been taken in by the bad boy, not knowing that he's evil. And that's what happens to Kurt here. So we don't talk about consent. To, and yes, I, I, I'm not saying it's not problematic. I agree with Andrew by nature. He probably should be pissed by it, right? In real life, if someone lies to you about who they are in order to sleep with you, that is a problem, period. Well, we don't. We also don't know if there's like a magical superpowers component to it because she yeah. has some sort of succubus oh, yeah. magic. So, I mean, was he able to consent yeah. given that factor? And I, and I don't know. I don't read it as having that, but that's just, that's my personal reading. I read it, just everything else that I know about Kurt, he's not involved with anybody right now. He's, he might like Megan, but he, but Megan's dating somebody else. He doesn't appear to be dating Ma Amanda at this point. Other girlfriends are, you know, none of his other girlfriends are around. Nothing about Kurt makes me think that in his right mind, okay, okay, I've read stories where Kurt has had a relationship with a woman that he, that he slept with before. Anna has posted them to our, our feed, right? Like, Kurt will absolutely sleep with a strong woman who throws him, herself at him while he's single. And I believe that he would have done that here. The fact that she turned out to be evil is her manipulating. And that's not a, the superhero narrative doesn't call that a consent issue. Maybe they should. It, it, it's too common of, that's the trope of what bad girls and bad boys do, right? Like, you manipulate by, by getting into a relationship with the person that you want to manipulate. So the manipulation, it just, it doesn't feel like it's just as tied to the sexuality as it should be other than the fact that even the point where the narrator the storyteller says well he's a man men are going to do this <laughs> you know that's what men do and and yeah that's a that is the it's it's lampshading it's the narrative knowing that that's a flaw that you know the the strong man will sleep with you know whatever woman will let him and this doesn't change that so he's flawed in that way that every hero is in this narrative particularly when you move from the superhero narrative to the pulpy um john carter world which which we started off with because john carter does this constantly throughout his what are they like 14 books originally i don't know how 11 11 okay yeah. this happens to him a lot <laughs> like that's what john carter does is he you know he goes to mars and he gets to sleep with princess ladies some of whom are well, and it's, it's and a some way of them are <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a way of sort of justifying certain sexual contexts, too, to make the character be the one that's attacked with sex rather mm -hmm. than seeking out sex, right? That can be the sort of a way of navigating that as well. I don't have an, I actually don't have an opinion on whether I read it as consent or not. I think the magical MacGuffin element of it makes it like iffy at the very least. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to sort of neglect that aspect of it. I mean, I think that within the story, it's not suggested that Kurt is troubled by it. I mean, he feels bad about letting down his friend but I think my read of his character was that he wouldn't be overly overly troubled by it like he's sort of a sexual enough character sort of a knowledgeable enough character a character who's been through enough that this isn't necessarily going to be like a make or break moment for him and I think honestly yeah. he would probably come away with it with like I enjoyed myself and that's kind of what Matt and we won so that's kind of what matters I will say like one thing that we haven't touched on is the fact that it's Kitty narrating this story which oh, we maybe like don't have to talk we don't have to talk about yeah I know but I just yeah <laughs> You know what though it that's thrown away in like two seconds like of, I know. of, of meaningless next next time so yeah it does matter because cross time caper and the immediate aftermath is very much a sexual awakening for the kitty pride character kitty pride i know the reason andrew doesn't like the colossus relationship which is her most sexy thing up until this point is he's a grown man even though he's you know 19 like the most charitable way of thinking about it because their ages are weirdly variable is that he's 18 and she's she's clearly 13 when she becomes 
becomes interested in them, but 14 the first time they kiss. Okay, so four years age difference, that's more char- the most charitable. It's likely more like six, <laughs> you know? So, <laughs> but she is very much a child trying to hang with grownups in there. And Excalibur very much is her growing up story. There's a lot of Kitty being okay with and understanding her sexuality over the course of the first 50 issues of Excalibur. And this is it. This is her understanding Kurt's sexuality and sort of talking about it in a grown-up way. Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit more in the next issue since that's when we get that reveal of her as the narrator and we can kind of come back to it a little bit. The one thing I just had to jump in and say because I feel like loyal listeners of the pod would expect me to weigh in on this. I consider Kurt a sexually flexible character in terms of his topness or bottomness and that is one of the things that I find find interesting about this character. He is totally good with being dominated but he's also the kind of character that wouldn't lose his masculinity through domination. He's kind of a power bottom in that relationship but he's definitely also a flexible character to my mind. I I assume that he likes it both ways. Yes. (laughs) And and yes all kinds of ambiguity intended in that statement when I made it. Yes. I have to just also say how much restraint I used not interrupting Keith when he used the phrase, and I wrote it down to make sure I would remember, starts to tail her in like 20 minutes ago. (laughs) I just wanted to point that out because I didn't want to interrupt our very nice guest. Um, But I mean, I've mentioned it on this pod before, but I actually wrote about it in a piece recently. But I mean, in terms of that flexibility of Kurt, some of the kind of gender fluidity of his body speaks to that a little bit. And I mean, I'm being totally serious here that I mean, I think the imagery of his tail is a really interesting example there the way it can be sort of a phallic symbol or almost like a connotatively feminine sensual symbol like it is a thing that thrusts and squeezes and it does both and that is sort of key to some of the sexuality of this character and you always want to laugh when you're talking about things like that but I'm like yeah but these things are like kind of serious too in terms of we're talking about this story that we're still really interested in as adults as academics like 30 years later so these things matter and I had you as a guest on my other show when we we had an episode where we talked about we about super sex like which yeah. is the title of your book but also very candidly about literally if because it's always like well how, how could your mind go there when you're when you're you know they're superheroes why would you go to sex because kurt's natural state is to be a very flexible human being with a prehensile tail why would that not be a part of your sex life it naturally must be that's who he is right like in real life as a person who is human i have you know body parts i have you know not just genitals but i have fingers and hands and lips and you know those are the parts of my natural body his natural body includes a tail of course it it gets involved like how else would it not like it would be weird if it didn't it's also part of his swashbuckler persona because he's wielding the sword with the tail and it's also i found it interesting it's the thing that remains exceptional about him on this world because there are all these blue people who look exactly like him but they don't have tails that they can hold swords with so it remains <laughs> you know the part of part of what makes him remarkable and uh yeah to the degree that that swashbuckler persona is part of his you know kind of fluctuating sexuality gender his his kind of hybrid performance then it makes sense that that plays into his uh, swashbuckler persona yeah and he uses his tail to take out Kimnery when she catches mm-hmm. him in the chokehold he's got other alternatives as he says <laughs> and that's a question for you they lose their immune abilities here but kurt does not turn human they lose oh, their immune abilities have... okay and he is this is gonna with a tail yeah yeah this is going to come up in a future episode because Alan Davis tries to solve that by suggesting that Kurt's appearance is not a mutation. 
which is not consistent in X-Men continuity, no. but it is actually going to get brought up in a future issue of Excalibur. I think it's like in Excalibur 64 and like, we're going to talk about it, but like, yeah, there are questions about that. And there remain to be questions in X-Men continuity about whether Kurt is like magical or mutant and makes me crazy, but it is interesting. Yes. But usually when they're in power dampener situations, he retains his like flexibility and appearance and everything and just loses his teleportation. Mm -hmm. That's, that's sort of pretty consistent. So now but I wanted to, people are going to stay stay with us for at least 50 more episodes <laughs> yeah yeah exactly but i wanted to talk about the character of kimri because i have perhaps a silly question about her but is she kurt in this world or is she somebody else i think she's somebody else yeah there's a lot of people who are kurt like i know but is there any possibility that she's kitty in this world i have a friend who brought that up to me and i had to broach it as a as a question she has elements of kittiness in her personality you know like kind of in that no nonsense like kind of like personality but also the name and i don't know i had to bring it up because i thought it was sort of an intriguing proposition that i hadn't considered before and i want to talk the other thing i really want to talk about and maybe it's related to that because we definitely have to talk about that before we run out of time is the fact that kitty kills angeli here yeah perfect. and this is a big moment and we uh -huh. got to talk about that so i think this is the first time that kitty has killed sorry go ahead Mev. no no it's well no say that because it, it is kitty fans tend to canonically say that this is kitty's first murder kitty murders a lot but she never killed anybody <laughs> as ogan like ogan yeah. was um she she is a demon and she she alludes in this issue to you know i was a demon ninja for ninja a while demon, yeah yeah, and uh, she's referring to the Kitty Pride and Wolverine miniseries where I don't believe Kitty, even when inhabited, actually manages to kill anybody nearly several times. But but this is canonically Kitty's first murder and she gets good at it. Um, in order to consider it Kitty's first murder, this assumes a lot of human centric. Uh, yeah, because she kills like, a brood. She like kills in, tons in that of brood. Kitty, yeah. Kitty has no problem with killing sentient creatures. This is the first humanoid in the classical sense that she um has killed and ramifications of her doing it seem to be pretty much none so she, i don't think she has problems of killing sentient humanoids either in fact i know she doesn't from future stuff kitty kitty is okay with murder and you know it kind of scans for me because of this whole thing i said where she is growing up and as much as she is discovering her sexuality she's also discovering her humanness and part of her was very much raised by wolverine there's a reason he was her best friend you know yeah. one of her best i friends. would push I back a little bit on her being a character who just murders people just in the sense oh, no, that no, no, yes no. yeah yeah no no not not blanketly i'm saying I'm saying murder is not a deal breaker for Kitty Pride anymore. And like, yeah. Is she, is she a berserker? Absolutely not. But if I got to kill somebody in order to, you know, oh, getting the job done. Okay. I'll stick a sword in this lady's back. She's clearly a bad guy. No, no big loss. I, I don't think that's a problem for her. It stands out though, as a lot different than a lot of other characters within the X-Men space in which she is a character that there's a reason why this is focused on so heavily here, because it is shocking because it's Kitty. Like, I mean, we don't see like even the time that she killed the brood back in Uncanny, like if we're just going to focus on this, this era that was totally by accident and it was about to eat her and she like opens the airlock and it gets sucked out and she feels terrible about it like she's like i'm not wolverine i don't want to be wolverine this is my narrative so she i think it's now. important that she yeah <laughs> but i don't want to talk about the current books because that's actually no, 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 no. i mean, now, I, I mean yeah. now right here i mean now yeah. right here 
yes, she was affected by it at the beginning of her tenure with the X-Men. Now this is getting the job done. And I think that's important. I, I, I don't think she, I don't think she has a bloodlust, but I think that she understands that if, if my life is going to be being a professional intergalactic superhero, every once in a while, I'm going to have to, you know, end somebody. And I think that's what she does here. And I think she makes this decision. I don't think she has regrets about it. I think in Kitty's world, Kitty made the right decision in this yeah. moment and she's fine with it. Yeah, I don't disagree, but like, I mean, why is this here narratively? Like, why does it pick this moment to be the moment that Kitty Pride takes a life? And that's where I was sort of went, like, what's the significance of the Angeli Kitty, the, the, the Angeli Kimry thing here that this would be the moment that Kitty chooses? I know it's expedient, but like the narrative wrote it this way for a reason. They could have had somebody else kill her. It's such a strange moment. You know, I, I was actually really enjoying the fact that Kitty was becoming a more kind of uh, aggressive character in this issue. I really liked earlier when they kind of reversed the dynamic with her and Rachel and that she came to Rachel's protection when Rachel has been protecting her for so long. And then you have this moment where it's kind of just like this awkward silence and exchange is like, you know, she dies, she falls. And then there's the frame of Kitty, you know, trading glances with the woman she just saved. And it's like, well, I don't know who you are and I don't know who that woman I just killed is, but I'm a murderer now. And it's like, okay, this is a very important moment, but narratively for Kitty, is it? Like, I guess maybe, you know, to what Rav was saying, maybe that's what makes it significant is it doesn't matter who these people are. You know, there's there's action happening and I have to start swinging swords and killing people. So there's no time to worry about who are you and who am I saving. But it makes it just such an awkward moment because it's just like there's no significance between these three characters. So it's just kind of like this awkward silence after it happens. Mm -hmm. I think it would make more sense if Kitty had a little bit more context. She knows at this point that Angelie is evil. She knows that Angelie was like she actually does know that Angelie might have been succubusing Kurt because it's brought up in the slight dialogue that they have before that so she might hate her on that level but like I mean she doesn't know about I think it would make more sense if she knew about Angelie being a perpetrator of a holocaust which we have the room of skulls right before this right and I mean I hate to like sort of put that on Kitty again after we just went through the Nazi storyline but that is a context in which certainly there's a Guardians of the Galaxy issue in which she kills somebody in that context but she doesn't have that context here so I just yeah I was wondering too about what the significance of this moment is andrew did you have any thoughts on it no i just i agree with keith but i i think for me this is um maybe a lost opportunity like there should be consequence for that there should be reaction to that more mm -hmm. than just this one shot of her face kind of not really even saying anything as it occurs so i, I think that may be a situation where claremont just kind of dropped the ball uh and, and didn't really develop with something that should have been a bigger deal i mean that exchange between kimry and kitty is very loaded i mean that quiet pan all where they're looking at each other with kitty with the sword but yeah, it's just so ambiguous that there's not really it's really hard to know what to make of that because it seems like there's some sort of identification moment between the two characters there but i mean it could be any number of things recognition of a warrior i yeah yeah I it could be that we haven't talked about it much but uh keith you alluded to it very briefly there's earlier stuff with rachel and keith you said you know this is the world where rachel you know protects kitty no it's not rachel thinks it's that world it's never been that world kitty can fight better than any of them kitty was you know shy of wolverine who has been training her to be an assassin since she was 13 years old 
you know, like like she and she's clearly a gifted student. And she in this issue, she alludes to the fact that she still has some of her hand ninja training just cycling around in her head. So I think that, you know, just because Rachel thinks that she's going to defend her, uh, Rachel says, oh, stay back, Kitty, I'll save you. And Rachel promptly without powers gets knocked into a wall and knocked unconscious. And then Kitty does her ninja thing. I think that this is recognition of the fact that Kitty is a warrior with or without powers you know and and i and yeah i i i see where andrew's going with the maybe there's like something more explicit but you know we've talked on pretty on previous episodes about you know the mary sueness of kitty pride and whether that's true it is to an effect and i don't think that is a i don't think of that as a detriment to her character that's the role that she plays and if there's a problem with it it's because it's been copied so many times since then but in some worlds kitty pride is buffy summers in fact buffy summers is directly inspired by katie pride so that's what she's doing here yeah i don't know i was just definitely interested in that moment and sort of like mm-hmm. the link between kimry and kurt i mean it's worth noting that kurt marries kimry in x-men the end written by claremont which i don't like as a choice it's out no, of nowhere no. kimry hates kurt and she's into alistair so i don't like that as yeah, a choice issue, but it is interesting a, yeah. that yeah um any kind of final thoughts before we completely run out of time i like i definitely could have done five more hours on this issue yeah andrew go ahead I do have an important bit of context. So after Mav mentioned it, I looked it up. And very interestingly, Amanda Sefton actually shows up the same time this issue comes out in X-Men at Excalibur's lighthouse. She's calling for Nightcrawler. It's a late at night. It's a booty call. Um, She says, come out, come out wherever you are. So much for that bright idea. When I read about him resurfacing with this British supergroup Excalibur, I thought the heck with pride, even if we can't be what we were. So... I think what if you that? why would you do that to me? It <laughs> is two fifty three. Okay, yeah, so I'm, I'm reading X Men at that point too, and and there is a point. Hey, this is weird because we only we we review these in a microcosm of you know of just what's going on in Excalibur because that's the choice we made. But you know, just as a world in the absence of Excalibur and in the absence of X Men, Amanda and Alistair, uh, Alistair's sister, join the X Men at this point. Yep. <laughs> Just historically, that's a thing that happened. So, <laughs> but I think that adds some context to Nightcrawler's relationship with Anjali. Like, I mean, it makes it clear that he and Amanda were separated. Um, but it also maybe makes the the reader long for them to get back together, depending on your stance on Amanda Kerr. Well, the thing that I really wish that she wasn't the adopted sister thing is because I actually do love the thing that they have where they have kind of a booty call relationship. It's so good and I want to root for it so bad. I love like when he comes (laughs) back to life, the first thing he does is booty call Amanda. And I'm just like, (laughs) I love that. But like, why with the foster sister? Why, why, why? What's odd about it is we should should just talk about that a a briefly because it does matter here in it and that it defines Kurt's sexuality a lot, which is what we've talked about most of this episode uh, yeah. the sister thing doesn't even matter it's a detail only to be weird like there it know, serves the story and no like you know he's raised by clearly not his natural family in this circus it could just be the girl that he's had a crush on since he was 12 and that's fine but no 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 they think of each other as brother and sister because we want it to be weirder that's the only reason <laughs> it's, like, like, it's I, so I, random no i hate reason. it i know it's, it's I know. just to make the story weirder and because i i, I like I, the story of like like, you know, her being someone that he can be so calm and comfortable around because she knows him and she's always known mm-hmm. his difference and doesn't have that barrier. Yeah. And I really love that as an aspect of it. And then the freaking foster sister thing. This, yeah, there, there's a flashback. 
I don't know the, I don't know the issue off the top of my head either, but there's a flashback issue where you see their origin and you see that she is completely accepting and loving of him yeah. as a person it's, when it's he's It's the 13. Excalibur flashback issue, yeah. the minus one. Minus one, yes. And the, he's 13, he's the weird looking boy and they love each other and, and she thinks he's cute and wonderful and like this is all okay if you're just like, yeah, my 13 year old boyfriend is, is blue, it's fine. But no, 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 it's all he's also my brother. Makes it weird. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. All right, Keith, final thoughts. Anything that you want to desperately bring up that we haven't brought up? I feel like I wish that we'd heard from you a little bit more on this podcast. It's on me, but it's your chance to to sum up the episode in your mind. I'm just very impressed by the amount of world building and storytelling and narrative threads that happen in this issue. There's like, you know, a narrator as a a framing piece, and, Mm -hmm. and it all kind of comes together in that splash image of the Cthulhu demon and <laughs> it was like okay now all the threads are together and we're going to end this in three pages um, just <laughs> really impressive breakneck speed storytelling in this issue yeah. It really is. And I mean, I definitely have to point out that, you know, we've talked about tentacles a little bit previously. It explicitly says in this one, when the narrator is telling the story and describing the tentacle bit and one of the aliens is like, hey, that's how my people have sex. That's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) So like, they're just explicitly like, yeah, so that's like a sex thing. (laughs) Shout out to the tentacle people. Yeah, he I know, it's pleasurable right? Too. He's like, oh yeah, typical. Yep. It feels good. <laughs> yeah, I love that though, Keith. I mean, if you thinking about this within your sort of context of other X Men comics, you know, can I give you sort of a last word to kind of talk about? Did you find that Excalibur has a different tone than kind of the X Men comics that you're used to? Like, were you kind of surprised by this book, kind of digging in after all these years? Oh, totally. I feel like Excalibur is different from any other X Men series I've read, and it's really different from other superhero series from that era. You know, I think it was in like your first or second episode of the podcast. Mav said that or he described it as like a postmodern superhero comic. And I was like, all right, let's, let's slow down. I mean, it's just a superhero comic, but you know, I, I had only read the first two issues at that point. And now that I'm like more than a dozen issues in, he's totally right. This is a very postmodern comic. It, feels like Claremont really just wanted to have like a sandbox where he could play around with genre, play around with tone, do, you know, experiment with different settings and and tell whatever story was kind of popping into his head. And and that makes it feel very different. I feel like, you know, I think of traditional X-Men comics as being really directed at teenagers. I feel like, you know, the emphasis on action and the whole theme of belonging and kind of you and your friends against society that really has appeal for teenagers i feel like excalibur really is kind of directed at more of a 20 something crowd the themes are things like you know how, how do i get along with my weird roommates and how do i figure out that this long-term relationship that i'm in isn't healthy or good and how do i come to terms with my you know sexual identity as i'm coming to understand it those are those are themes that are going to resonate with like an 
older audience. So this feels like it's a, a different kind of comic aimed at an older crowd. And it might not be fair to say this, I do feel like it's a more character-focused comic series. And, you know, X-Men, Uncanny X-Men is a character-focused series, especially under Claremont. The, the focus was on the characters. But, I mean, the regular X-Men series also feel like they're very much about the mythology and that the mythology kind of weighs it down sometimes and that that is, you know, as important as the characters. And Excalibur doesn't have this. It's really just about these five characters. So I feel like the focus is a little bit more uh, on there. But, yeah, I mean, this... Excalibur to me feels like, I don't know, Doctor Who meets the real world. You know, it's not like a regular X-Men comic. That's beautiful, Keith. I can't think of a better note to end on than that. So, you need me again now that my truce is wrecked. Years to build and moments to ruin. And all for lust. For Egraine. One night with her. You don't understand, you're not a man. Use the magic. Do it. Igraine. You will swear by your true kingship to grant me what I wish. Then you shall have it. By Excalibur, I swear it. What is used from your lust? Swear it again. I swear it! So, we will wrap things up on our marathon session. Other than to say, Keith, anything you'd like to plug for our listeners, where can people find you if you would like them to find you? Yeah, people can find me on Twitter at FriedKeith. I think the, the last thing that I wrote probably appeared in Anna's excellent collection, Super Sex. So people can find my essay about the Young Avengers there. Also, if you Google Thanos and toxic masculinity, you'll find my uh, essay about the Marvel Cinematic Universe version of Thanos that was published on the Middle Spaces a year or two ago. And I'll also put in a quick plug for the Canadian Society for the Study of Comics. Uh, it's a really great organization. If you have any interest in studying and writing about comics from an academic or a popular perspective, then you should check us out. Uh, we're an academic society, but we have lots of members who are independent scholars or just kind of in popular criticism. So you can check us out at comics hyphen scholars.com or on twitter at comicsbd. thank you so much for joining us keith i was so thrilled to have your voice on this episode i hope it lived up to your expectations <laughs> next in one week's time we will be on to episode 18 in which we will be discussing excalibur number 17 from the crucible a captain in which excalibur attends a raucous party and dies we'll talk about it in the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Box Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week, and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another adventurous conversation. Thank you, Keith, for setting sail with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. 